The summer 2021 season of anime has graced us with an original work called Sunny Boy. And to say that it's a series which invites discussion is to massively undersell it. This is the work we have chosen to watch live each week on my Twitch channel, followed by instant analysis. But the truth is, well, there is so much going on in this series, so many details and nuances, that we're never going to catch them all on a first or even second watch. So while this and the videos to come won't be the, the full-blown, long-form analyses that are supposed to be the main content around here, go ahead and expect me to make one of these most weeks as we work our way through this complex and compelling story. For this video, we'll be discussing the first four episodes together. There will be no attempt to be comprehensive. Instead, I want to do something like a roundup of little details or examples of visual storytelling, partially because I want to brag on the series, and partially because it will set your expectations for the richness you can expect from Sunny Boy overall. For the next video, we'll concentrate on characterization and matters of theme, and we'll go ahead and include episode 5 in our analysis. Both the strength and curse of this series from the audience's perspective is how much information is communicated to us over the course of each episode. We'll frequently have little details in the background of shots, or a cut that only lasts a second or two, or nothing but body language to indicate a character's state of mind. This is basically show-don't-tell the anime. It even drops us a full week into the story after the inciting moment of going adrift, challenging us to catch up. We must make sense of what has happened and what the characters have learned with very little hand-holding. While this requires some work on the part of the audience, it also puts us in a situation to share the experiences of the characters. They struggle to make sense of their changing situation, to pursue the mysteries presented, and try, or fail, to understand how to interact with one another. They are bewildered and only get so much time to adapt to the changes around them before some new confusion emerges. Well, that is a pretty familiar sensation for the viewers, as each episode begins with a time skip and some new developments that we try to grasp alongside the narrative. We share their bewilderment, and we must also try to piece the little details together to form a coherent whole. I have thus picked 70-plus examples across these four episodes to demonstrate what I mean. We'll divide these details up by episode, roughly in order. The series begins with Nagara looking at his smartphone while lying on the floor in an empty classroom. Other than telling us that he's the kind of guy who, well, lies on the floor by himself for fun, the smartphone is riddled with cracks suggesting that his family is not in a financial situation where he can easily replace it. He's looking at a one-sided text conversation with his mother, asking about various utilities being paid or not, and reminding her about his career counseling at school, which we later learn she ditched. In addition to the content of the conversation, the fact that she hasn't responded to any of them and that he would be looking back over the messages paint a rapid picture of his life situation. Much thanks to community member Intoto for the translations of this exchange. The camera holds on the clock a moment as it hits 12 o'clock, but later in the same scene, we'll see the clock again, and it is once more striking 12. This happens a few more times in these episodes, 
always showing the last seconds before 12. It's a first clue that the school is stuck in time, and the later determination that the school and students themselves reset to their original state is foreshadowed by this detail. Importantly, no one ever says anything about the clock's behavior. The audience is left to understand the significance of those brief shots on their own. We even get a little hourglass with Rajdani later on alongside a clock, implying he did some experimenting on the phenomenon, but even then, no one explains it to us. This is going to be a common pattern. The pickup game of soccer is referred to as playing superpowers by Nozomi, but we don't see the boys do anything particularly superhuman. However, we can see that the hallways around the area are warped, and we'll later see that reshaping the school is someone's power. Very easy to miss at first, but more obvious in hindsight. That too will be a common pattern. The voice which speaks to Hoshi can sometimes be heard by the audience as well. Its most obvious appearance is in the terrifying vision shown to Asakaze, but the actual first instance of the voice happens during the scene where Hoshi and Cap are discussing the idea of forming rules and electing a leader. The voice speaks over Cap completing Hoshi's analogy of soccer, that anyone who commits a foul is given a penalty. Easy to miss since Cap mouths the same thing. Significantly though, the voice is talking about how the rules for this shadow world will work, a first indication that the voice is where Hoshi's understanding originates. There are several in Mizuho's first appearance. First off, the piles of empty boxes, emblazoned with a logo not from Amazon, but Niamazon. They come complete with a little addition to them that makes them cat faces. But this isn't anime's habit of making obvious knockoff versions of real products, it's instead a clue to the nature of her power. The only other hint of these packages' origin is a brief sound of something dropping that causes Mizuho to turn her head. The shot reveals a cat sitting on top of unopened Nyamazan packages, a cat that Mizuho pets and praises. It's up to us to figure out why all this stuff surrounds her, but we do, because the series gives us enough context to make the leap. There's also some initial characterization of Mizuho in background details, which make more sense in retrospect. The pizza box with a single slice eaten, the cake with a tiny bit missing, enough to share with others, but no sharing has taken place. The newest delivery ends up being the final volume of Stop Ibari-kun. This may suggest that she has been reading the rest of the series this week since they've been adrift, perhaps to the exclusion of being social. In fact, we'll see a stack of manga that she has perhaps completed in that time frame. Stop Hibari-kun itself, by the way, is also by the guy who does character design for this series. I don't know enough about the manga itself to infer anything it might say about Mizuho, but it very well may. Another external manga reference can be found in the name chosen for the group chat, Drifting Classroom. That is an older work with a somewhat similar setup, a school that leaves one reality with students in tow, who then have to organize themselves to deal with an unfamiliar world. Speaking of the group chat, there is a little number in parentheses by the name, reading 34. We know that there are 36 students from the chat which follows, and so two are missing from it, 
This is later revealed to be Nagara and Nozomi, who turn out to be outsiders in more ways than just this group chat. The ballots they cast for the election show Cap's nickname in both Romaji and Katakana for the majority of the ones we can read. However, there is the family name of Sheba for a few of them, and I don't think we know who that is yet. It's not Pony, at least. Her real name is Tanaka Machi, and this presages the reveal about her backstory. To continue on Pony for another entry, when Cap wins, he's unsure about it and suggests that it should really be her since she's the student council president. Hoshi will interrupt this idea by saying, no, it has to be Cap. However, if you slow it down, you can see how Pony reacts to this exchange. Her smile at Cap's suggestion falls at having it taken away. It won't be until next episode that we learn she was actually defeated by a huge margin in the student council elections. She is aware that her peers do not have confidence in her as a leader. There's a brief shot of empty shelves labeled Teacher Daily Reports and Logs before we hear Nozomi asking Nagara about any strange events at school. Then we'll see her with ledgers open in her lap and spread all over the table, indicating a thorough, ongoing search. It's one of the first indicators that Nozomi is inquisitive and can be single-minded about whatever holds her interest. For yet more initial characterizations, Asakaze's first line complaining about the new restrictions is accompanied by a close-up of him banging on the blackboard where they are written, that is, literally attacking the rules themselves. For number 14, this is as good a time as any to point out how the way the students wear their uniforms also characterizes them. Ponies is neat and precise and just as it should be for school, Cap is similar, but with the ball cap that ties to his identity as a baseball player, and Asakaze doesn't just wear his shirt open, but has a bright red undershirt, bucking the uniform as much as he can. Nagara wears his sloppily, no effort to keep up appearances, but no direct alteration to the standard uniform. He puts in no effort either way. And Nozomi, of course, has a different one entirely due to being a transfer student, visually marking her as an outsider in every scene. When Asakaze is ranting about the rules, Cap will try to calm him down, which causes Asakaze to turn his ire on Cap. He'll accuse Cap of being jealous because he doesn't have any great power. In reaction, Cap's face twitches just a little. A tell. Asakaze isn't completely off the mark here, and what's more, Cap is perhaps not the best at dealing with open defiance. This tiny facial twitch hints at why we'll have the violent confrontation between these two in the final minutes of the episode. It's yet another detail involving Nyamazon, but the brief shot of one of Mizuho's cats before we see the incongruence of a functioning carousel in the middle of the gym helps communicate to us that the cats can deliver things which don't fit in little boxes, or indeed, things which shouldn't be available in the first place. The whole castle that Mizuho ends up with in episode 2 isn't really out of left field taking this example into consideration. Additionally, the carousel injects a little playful surrealism into the series, and not for the last time. This shot when Cap tries to gift Nozomi the smartphone is a nice touch as Nozomi's reflection creates a visual with her contained and in the hands of someone who represents authority. 
That is precisely the situation she finds intolerable, as the rest of their interaction will bear out. Although no one changes the date on the blackboard away from August 16th, when they apparently went adrift, we do get this brief image of 14 tally marks on the day that Nozomi serves her penalty for breaking the offered phone. We know from the group message that it had been seven days at the start of the anime, and so this seems to indicate that it was a week later from then. Just a week of living under their makeshift government before a revolution is attempted, apparently. I think it might also be worth noting that they were not tallying the days at the beginning, but only after a certain point. The tally marks may thus suggest someone accepting that they are going to be here long enough that they should start keeping track, as opposed to the beginning when they likely thought it to be a very temporary state. The long flashback sequence demonstrating when Nagara and Nozomi meet has a few of these details as well. I didn't have the translation for the opening text messages until recently, but despite that, we can tell from Nagara's meeting with his homeroom teacher that his mother has skipped out on this meeting before. To miss once is human, but to miss three times is a definite pattern, cluing us in to his home situation. Nagara, though, is apologizing for her behavior rather than expressing anger or blame, which tells us something about him. In that same exchange, there's a moment when a teacher named Ake-sensei is asked to fax something. It's ever so subtle, but Nagara's homeroom teacher shifts and perks up a bit, and we see a bit of said teacher from the neck down walking past. She has his interest, it would seem, and it may be that the encouraging things he says to Nagara immediately afterwards are meant to be heard by Aki-sensei, an attempt to impress her. If so, it's a bit disingenuous. What's more, if Nagara picked up on the lack of authenticity, then his own response, I'm glad to have you as my homeroom teacher, is perhaps just as disingenuous. He doesn't challenge or stay silent, but provides a socially acceptable response thanking the teacher. Nagara goes with the flow, even if it means saying things he doesn't really mean. As I said, Nozomi is in this scene as well, and she actually peeks in after that last comment, one of many instances of extreme close-ups of her eyes. This happens a lot with her, and the pattern appears to be that the close framings represent moments where she has a realization, especially about another person. She is seeing something, or seeing through someone, appropriately indicated by a focus on her eyes. In this particular case, she's picked up a little about Nagara here, and it comes up in their confrontation on the roof minutes later, as well as in their discussion about the injured birds in episode 2. Those confrontations get a little visual foreshadowing in the rooftop scene as well, where we can see the storm filling the sky on Nagara's side, and the sunny skies on Nozomi's. It is entirely possible that the coming storm is linked up with their leap into the other world, though the precise relationship between Nagara's state of mind and the world hopping is yet to be fully revealed. Additionally, the two contrasting skies mirror the demeanor of these two characters, Nagara's brooding gray melancholy, and Nozomi's more sunny disposition. For another example of a detail whose meaning isn't clear at first, we get a close-up of the cardboard-covered windows in what I presume is the student council room. This is after Asakaze broke them in his confrontation with Cap, so boarding them up doesn't seem that unusual. However, we'll later find out that the school resets itself, 
the food stocks replenish, the water and power are infinite, and broken things restore, including the students themselves. We thus get this shot in episode 2 of The Windows, but now without the cardboard. They are back to normal. This isn't just significant in the sense of continuity, either. The broken windows were the impetus for setting up rules in the original world in the first place, and yet ultimately unnecessary. Those of you familiar with broken windows theory in criminology probably can guess where I'm going with this, but we'll have to return to that in a later video. We'll get another demonstration of someone's superpower in show-don't-tell fashion when it comes to Pony. To this point, neither we nor those in Asakaze's little trio suspect that she has one, but it's demonstrated in quick fashion by having her perceive something, cut to show it's a water bottle, and then back to her concentrating a moment before being replaced by said bottle. Then we see Hoshi swapped for a can, and the two of them are behind our instigators. Without a word, we understand that Pony can swap places with another object, and she can extend that power to swap others as well. For these last two for episode one, just some quick initial details about two characters. One of the trio with Asakaze is a blonde girl who we can quickly determine has electrical powers. But we can also tell that she is foreign from her single line, which is translated in brackets, on Funimation at least, along with the tell of blonde hair, a frequent visual shorthand for foreigners in anime. It's also shorthand for delinquents, though, and in the context of their little rebellion, this may have been how we interpreted it without her speaking. When we see her name in Hayato's power list in episode 3, there is a neat little payoff for this short setup, as she is referred to as Shanghai. Lastly, we have another super shortcut of a character, like the earlier one with Pony's face falling. In this case, it's Rajdani, whose only other part in the premiere is delivering exposition. This leads us to expect that he'll be the science guy, and we might be tempted to affix a lot of asocial stereotypes to him, especially since he is alone throughout his whole scene. However, we have this fleeting cut of him with his hand on the shoulder of a distressed student, and we can infer that he is reassuring them about the tumultuous things going on. That paints a little different picture. He's certainly not socially undeveloped, and sure enough, he turns out to be something of a natural leader. Okay, so that is over two dozen details just from the first episode, and it's hardly everything. As pointed out, sometimes their significance wasn't clear until later episodes, so there are probably things I don't even know that I missed. Hopefully though, my point about how much visual storytelling is going on in this series has been adequately demonstrated, and how much one is rewarded for paying careful attention. Let's thus be a little less thorough as we go through the following three episodes. So early on in episode two, we will get an initial look at Rajdani's setup, a radio post, antenna, along with some solar panels to explain how it's being powered. We thus know there have been attempts to call for help since we saw them in the previous episode. Additionally, his little area will change with regularity over these episodes, communicating things about his power and his character, but also the changing situation on the island, before and after they understand how its rule works. Nozomi's little stunt with the crab was just her amusing herself, it seems, as she says it was today's dinner, but doesn't chase it when it flees. 
This works fine as just characterizing her and Nagara and how they relate, but later in the third episode we'll also see that she has caught fish. Perhaps it means that Nozomi is someone familiar with fishing and crabbing. Perhaps it implies a seaside origin of some variety. After all, we don't see anyone else trying to gather seafood. But it also means that Nozomi is doing something for food besides eating the rations from the school or asking for food from Mizuho. And she is continuing this behavior in episode 3 after they figure out what causes the fires. It thus seems like another example of her desire to remain a bit removed from dependence or constraints associated with their ad hoc society. There's another shot of Mizuho's space that continues the impression we got from the first episode, a table full of cakes and other sweets where only a slice or two have been eaten, extravagances that are not shared. Likewise, there are some boxes of things that have been opened but left in place, as though she has so much stuff coming to her that she hasn't even bothered to get to it all. We're then going to have several little details or visual storytelling elements in Rajdani's expository scene. There's a brief shot of the blackboard before he speaks, showing Project Robinson Crusoe and Hatino Island. The novel Robinson Crusoe kicked off the whole deserted island trope for storytelling, but it's fitting in other ways. Crusoe tries to recreate his society as best he can on the island he was stranded on, and the novel overall has an optimistic bent about human nature. Hatino Island, meanwhile, is a real place, an idyllic but uninhabited island to the west of Okinawa, a paradise. These choices of names indicate the relative hopefulness and optimism of, well, Rajdani at least, but likely many other students, at least at this point in the story. The arrangement of this little debriefing area is of note as well. They have pulled the desks, chairs, blackboard, and lectern from the school, which certainly makes sense as far as getting use out of the resources they have, but the way they have reassembled a classroom, right down to having the same rows and tight spacing, is an interesting detail that could mean a number of things. Is this an enforced attempt at keeping order, preserving the impression that they are primarily classmates, and thus school rules and hierarchies should persist? Is it for nostalgia or comfort, a setup that is reassuringly familiar? Does the enforced resemblance to school make the whole ordeal seem more like they're on a class trip, a temporary state that ends when they return to their normal school lives? I don't know. But I do know they could have gone for any number of other arrangements, but they didn't. In that same shot of the classroom, we can see that the broken arm girl still indeed has a broken arm there on the far right, which Rajdani had previously suggested may be the case if they were in some kind of stasis. Making her visible in this scene by putting her at the back is appropriate, since that revelation is part of his speech. What's more, when we skip even further ahead to the end of episode 4, that same girl is still in a cast, all but confirming Rajdani's initial guess. When the stolen lipstick burns down a house, the girl who is especially distressed ends up being the girl who retreats to make stuffed toys in episode 3. How close she was to her limit was thus already teased in this earlier scene. In the flashback where we learn a pony cheated in the election for student council, retreated to a shot of the competing campaign posters, including competing slogans. 
Pony's slogan of preserving our heritage marks her as someone who either believes in tradition or believes that she is supposed to. While cheating is not exactly okay, I confess that this poster makes me a little sympathetic towards Pony. She's trying to go for something relatable but respectable in her posing, but is too awkward to really pull it off, and her resounding defeat in the actual results tell the tale of how poorly she actually relates to her classmates. There's a brief scene of a few students, including Cap and Hoshi, walking up to join Nozomi, and all are wearing backpacks. Nothing at all is said about this, and it hasn't come back up. It just seems to imply that small groups of students are setting out on little exploratory trips around the island. It also indicates that Nozomi is cooperating with their little society in some ways, rather than holding herself as distinct as she did in the first world. As students go to confront Mizuho, mistakenly believing that she is behind the fires, we get a quick shot of two floral wreaths also bursting into flame. These are presumably handmade, and thus foreshadow that it is not only things that come from Mizuho which will catch fire. This freely suspended light box illuminating Rajdani's new space is nice in a few ways. You can see the burned remains of the radio station behind him, so you know he didn't move somewhere else. It's an indication of some of what his power can do, before we start getting, well, even more examples. And there is this follow-up shot at the end of the episode, showing how that lightbox serves double duty as shade during the daytime. It also shows that Rajdani is rebuilding his little area with little help from Mizuho's power once he understood how the island's rules worked. Rajdani mentions having traded Mizuho for the unburned Game Boy. Well, we can see one moving around in the foreground of this shot. We know it's his because of thick white outlines. No one has ever had to tell us that. We pick it up just by being exposed to it a few times in the right context. The empty room Mizuho stands in during a brief flashback is potentially the one where we saw her speaking to the teacher right before she is confronted by Pony and Hoshi. As it's shown in response to Pony's comments about how she wouldn't have had to lose the teacher, it suggests it's the same room. This ends up being the room she moves the cats to, and is thus first able to use the Nyamazon power, as we see when she shares this with Nagara the next episode. The previous moments, where we see some of Rajdani's creations and their white outlines, now help us separate what he has made versus what he has acquired via Nyamazon. That then explains the somewhat magical tech that they are able to employ, but it also characterizes him as the designs are not just functional, but rather whimsical. In that same vein, we can see an upright log with the beginnings of a carved Buddha emerging from it. I presume this is Rajdani's work, since it's in his area, and his name, I believe, is Indian in origin. While this will also be a detail that helps us mark the passing of time, it further characterizes him, and we'll revisit in a later detail. Now here's a series of four related bits of visual storytelling. Murayama, the first of those who are discovered frozen, is shown reaching for a dropped AirPod to introduce this stellary element to us. He'll be one of four students found overall, people who were fed up or felt excluded from their society. What I noticed looking back is that each of them is frozen in positions where they were either likely ruminating or cursing some inconvenience. 
We'll see Inuyama sitting alone in a contemplative position, and you could say the same about Kaga, the last one who is found. Then there's the girl who we'll later find making the stuffed animals, and she was in the middle of carrying a bunch of sticks. Like Murayama reaching for the dropped airpod, I could see this being a moment where she is feeling particularly fed up, and perhaps there is thus some threshold each of them crossed during these, these frozen moments that caused them to end up in the curtain world. For number 43, we have another instance of Rajdani's power. And again, we only need the visual presentation to figure out that this is some kind of frozen person dousing rod. Just piling on the examples of how often the superpowers are communicated in show-don't-tell fashion. Now, there's a lot going on in this particular scene between Mizuho and Nagara, but this framing in particular. The body language between the two tells us quite a bit about how strained the relationship is at this moment, to be sure, but the rest of the scene is all about characterizing Mizuho. Not only has she ordered a couch and table in the middle of the jungle, seemingly just for a lunch break, her choices are so ostentatious. Much like the castle, there is a kind of conspicuous consumption to the things she uses her power for, especially when they will be seen by others. And she has that nouveau riche thing going on, another reminder that she did not come from privilege. And while she does order food for Nagara and gift it to him, she only got a fan for herself. In fact, it's the first thing our attention is drawn to in the scene. This overhead establishing shot reveals an area clear-cut out of forest around a lake, as well as in-progress building sites, fields, and a group of tents. It's like the starting space for an empire-building game, and the scenes which follow show us the students doing the manual labor necessary to begin that process including at least one girl who will later be rather fed up with it all. Within that series of scenes, though, we get this little nugget of visual storytelling. This guy's power lets him move the earth around, among other things, and so while he is a part of this group clearing the land, he can do so while sitting down and in the shade. You can see the divide in quality of life for those with and without powers, even when they're ostensibly working at the same task. The overhead shot from a moment ago is also useful for contrast against this scene of a boxy, treehouse-like dwelling surrounded by trees. From those details, we can ascertain that this is a different area, and thus the students we see here have apparently set up in a separate place from the others. There is an awkward play to ingratiate themselves with Mizuho, which she immediately sees through, but between these little details, it seems we have divisions or, or factions in their fledgling society. If so, recruiting those with the best powers makes a logical next move, and we may be seeing the beginning of that process here if we read between the lines. But for this one, I just like the attention to detail of how Mizuho is animated as she is sneaking the cats into school. When someone shows up in the same hallway, she self-consciously stops walking and puts both hands on the bag. It's a believable reaction from someone who fears being caught, though it would make her look awfully suspicious to anyone who was paying attention. Now this little scene where Tora apparently returns with the wrong kind of tuna has a series of nice little details. First is just Mizuho being comfortable doing this little routine in front of everyone else, as well as introducing the idea that the cats might can exercise their own free will in what they bring back. 
The reactions of the other three to her cat conversation also further their characterizations. Nagara looks bemused, Cap is giggling, but Pony gets angry over what she perceives as not taking the situation seriously. Finally, this is capped off by a shot of the three victims' photos pinned to the board where we can plainly see someone has doodled on them. Maybe that kind of thing is harmless usually, though it is often shorthand for indicating that someone is unpopular. In this situation where they are victims, however, it seems to reinforce that they are being excluded or picked on by the student society. When the investigation leads to wanting to see Hayato's power list, we have another bit of story communicated visually. He starts their conversation looking at a menu, and then later we'll see him chowing down on a bowl of something delicious. Clearly this was something ordered through Mizuho's power, and in compliance with the rules of the island, this seems to be payment for being able to peek at his list directly. So how about that power list? This really is a bunch of details, but we'll just count it as one, and we won't even go over all of it. Thanks again to Intoto for the translation help here. Among other things, the power list gives us the name of the guy who can move the earth around, Tazawa, as well as Shanghai, which we already mentioned. It's only seeing displays of their abilities before that we can match them up to the list, as the only power that's been named out loud in the series is Nozomi's compass. Speaking of Nozomi, her power is conspicuously absent from the pages that we get to see, as are Hoshi's and Rajdani's, so we don't gain any extra insight into these key characters. However, it seems that Cap does have one, though Hayato doesn't understand it very well, or else Cap is hiding something from him. In our streams, we've been assuming that everyone has a power, just they don't all realize it yet, or they're perhaps hiding it from the others. Nozomi had hers from the start, but had to figure out it was something unique to her by realizing that others couldn't see it. It would seem the same thing has happened for Cap, but without showing us how he discovered it. We do get to see the page for Nagara, though, who is not just listed as having no power, but has a little color commentary from Hayato. While he classified the others into types, like physical or mystical, he sorts Nagara into type villager. He further comments on Nagara always being spaced out, but that's nothing new, ha <laughs> If nothing else, this confirms that Nagara's disposition is not a new thing in his life. He acts preoccupied all the time. Indeed, the end of that scene characterizes Nagara further, but entirely through body language. After Azakaze disparages him and his usefulness, but then apologizes half-heartedly for the interruption, Nagara starts to say that he's the one who should apologize. But Nagara keeps his head down, unable to meet the challenge of Asakaze's eyes, who seemingly grows bored of it and flies off halfway through Nagara's sentence. Nagara will find Mizuho shooting him a look, a commentary on what she thinks of that exchange, and he will again look away. It's communicated to us with subtlety, but without any ambiguity. Again, we'll have some whimsical Rajdani creations. This time, little dog-like things, which have a set of hands contorted to form their heads. A, a bit like, like 3D shadow puppetry, I suppose. And they are the origin of the floating hands that Nagara controls in the following scene, where a giant fan disperses the curtain world and evicts the four hiding within. Despite how nonsensical the logic to these things may be, 
No one has to explain to us how they work. There's no narration, no obvious exposition. They just let us figure it out, and our attempts to do so emphasize the, the playfulness of the whole affair. Now, after those four students have been cured, an earlier detail gets a little payoff as we see a shot of the blackboard with the defaced photographs removed, only the magnets remaining. It communicates quickly that the case is over, the missing were restored, and also we should probably take down those photos that we scribbled on. In fact, it leads into a shot of the four of them being chatted up by the other students, perhaps implying they have rejoined society, or society has ceased ostracizing them. At the very least, the arts and crafts girl must not be too sore about being evicted from her safe space if she made Mizuho a little cat stuffed animal. This could also hint that Mizuho herself is gaining some acceptance among others, or learning how to be more personable, which is one of the things that this episode seems to be about. The opening scene of episode 4 gives us Hayato once again enjoying takeout, but he pauses a moment because he hears the sounds of monkeys. This is just one of several moments in this episode where someone hears the monkeys without having used the monkey-getter flashlight thingy. We also have one of the students hearing them amid the cheers for Nozomi's dive, and you can see him looking around trying to spot where the cries come from. We will also have Mizuho hearing them during Cap's story about Monkey Blue and the umpire. These instances don't just lend credence to Cap's otherwise wild tale, but suggest that the Monkey Mountain world must be very close to this one, or exists alongside it, or something such that the two might bleed into one another. There is a close-up of Nagara's legs to show him shaking with fear as he stands on the precipice where they are diving into one of the portals, however it is that that works. Understandable to be a little scared of this activity, sure, but there are two more such close-ups in this episode. One is when Cap recalls a shared experience of Nagara screwing up a Little League game, and the other is when Nagara steps into the batter's box against Ace's pitching. Apparently, those two baseball-related events are a source of terror for him, the same as the prospect of cliff diving into a black void. However, it isn't baseball itself that inspires this fear, as he has no problem going and playing with Cap while they hear the Monkey League histories. It seems instead that these three events are linked by being high-pressure situations, or perhaps being under the scrutiny of an audience. When Nagara shifts them between worlds after he is pushed off the cliff, most of those present look around at their surroundings and conclude it must be their original world. But what Nagara sees is a large ape with blue fur on a pitcher's mound, and he looks just as confused as they do. Later, when we hear the story of Monkey Blue and the almost perfect game, Cap will speak of a shifting of worlds at that critical moment, resulting in the 81st pitch being barely outside the strike zone. These two things seem to be related, and we may wonder if perhaps Nagara caused Monkey Blue to shift in that story, precipitating the tragedy with the umpire. Here, I just want to point out again how Rajdani's space continually changes, indicating the passing of time, but also emphasizing the creative and playful side of Rajdani. For a more specific detail, in his space, we see a Christmas tree and what appear to be opened presents, suggesting that it is now somewhere around late December by their original calendar. This keeps up the pattern of giving us some indication of time passing between episodes near the beginning of each. 
the one week they'd been in the Shadow World when the series starts, the one month of broadcasting an SOS in Episode 2, the month of experimenting with Nozomi's power at the beginning of 3, and now this visual of Christmas, perhaps suggesting that around two months have passed between Episode 3 and 4. The setting of the curry cart in this scene gives a strong impression of a little izakaya, or ramen stand, being frequented by co-workers after their day job is complete. Likewise with this wider shot, making it look like a little lit-up food cart in a nighttime street scene. The student running the cart doesn't speak and busies himself with little tasks, which heightens this impression. It makes our foursome here into something like comrades knocking off after a long day's work. Among other things, it lets us know that Mizuho's tentative step towards making friends in Episode 3 has continued, and she's now part of a group. These four in particular, we can presume, are mostly working on figuring out the powers that seem related to changing worlds and to finding the way back home. Later in that same setting, we get this detail of Cap's nervousness when asked about his power. When you pair that with the power list description, it becomes clear that there's something about what he can do that is embarrassing or that he feels must be kept secret. In fact, it's trying to change the subject away from his power that brings up the topic of baseball and thus leads to the entire rest of the episode. Now, Cap relating the Monkey League stories takes up a lot of episode 4. There are clues like it going from daytime to evening to let us know that he says a great deal. It also kind of demonstrates why he would be a popular person among his peers. He's a pretty engaging storyteller. But there are several interesting visual accompaniments to part of his story that I think are worth noting. The first is the original description of Monkey Blue, the pitcher who will play a big role in the later tragedy. His introduction is given over scenes of Nagara, of all people. The middle parts of the lines one might could imagine are about Nagara in the past and then perhaps in the future, who, despite weathering ugly discrimination and crafty persecution, triumphed over them with overwhelming talent, ultimately becoming a hero and a symbol of hope. Certainly, at the end of this episode, Nagara appears to embody the hope of returning home for many of the students, but just like Blue's almost perfect game, it's a hope that goes unrealized. The shot of Mizuho's Hyoru coin balance being a massive number in all nines is one part amusing and one part telling. You have to imagine a great deal of the liquid wealth of the students has flowed into her hands since she can constantly produce things to sell to them. It means she has not taken Nagara's suggestion to give everything away for free. We get a good shot of the Buddha statue that had only been begun last episode, again indicating the passing of time. However, the statue has a different hand posture from the usual Buddha poses, modified to resemble something more like heart hands. I can't help but feel this is just another indication of Rajdani's whimsy, and perhaps that he isn't a stickler for the sacred or traditional. If it wasn't clear enough by now, he is not the stock scientist archetype. Though we had the earlier curry scene to tell us that Mizuho is much more a part of the group now, we get several little bits during the baseball, training, and game that reassure us that she's still the same Mizuho. While the other three jog to train, she saunters idly behind, no pretense of trying to put herself out. 
Her ineffective attempts hitting the t-ball tell us that we should not count on her to win the day. Yet despite that, she'll still yell at Nagara like she's an old grizzled ball coach and disparage him for failing even though he was much closer than she was. However, she's there to hand him a bottle of water when it's over. No doubt, another Nyamazon item that she is giving him as her treat. This is all recognizable as the hot-cold treatment she gave him in the episode prior. She's more sociable and engaged, but she's definitely still Mizuho. We earlier had the description of Monkey Blue over shots of Nagara, and there are perhaps parallels between them. When it comes time to have the ill-fated Monkey Umpire introduced, those lines are spoken over shots of Nozomi. Nagara will later see the umpire and his one-armed status and intuit that he was naturally an outsider to the game of baseball, unable to take part in a direct way. Nozomi is the most obvious outsider to the entire cast, a point that is constantly visually reinforced by her different uniform. Later on, when she hears the end of Cap's story, she'll be impressed not by Blue, but by the umpire, because he prevailed against the whole world. During the game over the Monkey Gitter, Nozomi will foul Ace's first pitch. We get this shot of her looking at her hand and whistling, a quick and visual way of indicating just how hard Ace throws the ball. Next, a pair of related background details. When Nagara visualizes the umpire and his situation, we'll see him behind the home plate of a well-kept modern ballpark. However, when Nagara later warps all of them into another world while at bat, we'll see a run-down stadium, neglected and in decay. The details, though, match up with his vision of the umpire. These are the same ballparks. Nagara's intuition that it wasn't the umpire, but baseball itself that was killed, appears to track. The once pristine diamond is now mothballed and abandoned. At the end of the episode, we have two framings that kind of recall one another for some more visual storytelling. The first is after the baseball game, which Ace won. However, the crowd is gathered around the other team. Ace and Shanghai are separated from the group. Her words echo this separation. This isn't where we're supposed to be. The second framing also tells a short story. We'll get this composition, showing our group of Nozomi, Mizuho, Rajdani, Hoshi, and Pony separated from the rest of the student body. Importantly, no one in this group has their luggage packed. Mizuho even's laid out a picnic. They are not expecting it to be this easy to return home. And of the students, they are the ones most involved with the attempts to understand their overall situation. It says perhaps they have a more realistic or grounded opinion of their plight compared to the rest. Lastly, the appearance of Aki-sensei is surprising on its own, but the shock among the students at her speech indicates for us that this is not at all what they expected from her. This links a bit to an earlier detail, as Aki-sensei was the girl noticed by Nagara's homeroom teacher during their meeting. In that brief scene, she is being asked to fax something for someone else, and she is compliant, perhaps even cheerful in her inflection. Whoever this Ake-sensei is does not seem to be the very same one they knew before. Last of all, here's five bonus details that I don't yet understand the significance of, but the preceding list makes me want to pay attention to them all the same. 
In episode one, there's a brief shot of this cardboard box somewhere on the rooftop, with blankets or towels inside, and some bird feathers around it. What is it, and why is it worth focusing on during the scene between Nagara and Nozomi? A box where someone was keeping a pet? Or an injured animal? As far as I know, it hasn't been illuminated at all. In episode two, we have the ever-burning tree to open the episode, and again when Nagara returns Tora to Mizuho. But we get no other details about the tree. It seems almost totemic for the island and its particular rule set, but we never get any commentary. As part of that second scene with the burning tree, we cut away from Mizuho's approach to witness this thing opening its eyes. I suppose it looks most like a stylized fox, perhaps a trickster spirit of some kind? Its appearance is followed by Mizuho accusing the rest of them of being a bunch of tricksters, but whatever it is or means has not been mentioned or hinted at. There is, of course, the monolith in front of Hoshi at the end of episode 3, which looks a lot like the portals with the addition of an eclipse. Hoshi is likely talking to the voice he hears, but the relevance to the thing in front of him is still unexplained. Finally, what the heck is the fuzzy thing stuck to Nagara? They even bring it up and ask when it's stuck to him, but that's the end of it. Is it monkey fur from the other world or something? It looks incredibly suspicious to me, but they all seem rather blasé about it. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Puzzling over the little things in the series and all the meaning hiding between the lines is quite a delight for me, and I hope this video stoked some of that same excitement for you. The next video will focus on the characters as we understand them so far, as well as some of the things I think the series is doing with its themes. Some of the social commentary is obvious enough, I imagine, but there are more nuanced and complex elements, like the Monkey League story, uh, that I think need more space to, to tease out. If you are catching this video during the summer 2021 season, feel free to join us during one of the two weekly streams where we discuss Sunny Boy. They're on Thursdays, with the first containing a live reaction and first analysis, and a later, shorter stream featuring improved understanding due to having a few hours to digest things. The earlier one starts at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT, and the second begins at 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 12.30 a.m. GMT. There's also a dedicated channel in the Discord for this and eight other community-selected shows for this season, and a lot of discussion happens there as well. It helps me make sense of things myself, so I appreciate everyone that participates in the streams or the Discord channels. Thank you for your time today. I'll see you again on the other side of Episode 5.